Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Racing Lives. My name's Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot. And in this podcast, I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest, and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today is one of the most knowledgeable broadcast journalists in Formula One, with a career including an inspiring 10-year stint on our screens with Sky Sports, covering news, cricket, and of course, motorsport, and counting the likes of TalkSport, IMG and ITN as part of her CV. She's an ambassador for Dare to be Different. She is sharp, passionate and incredibly fair in her interviews, while remaining utterly relatable and approachable despite her high-pressure job. She's fiercely competitive in any quiz, an impressive poker player and my caller friend for any music round. My guest today is the incredibly brilliant Rachel Brooks. Thank you for doing this. That's all right. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm flattered to be asked. Cool. Let me ask you some questions. Okay, go for it. All right. When and where did your racing life begin? Probably before I was born. Um, I So when I was growing up, there's in our living room at my mum and dad's house, where they still live now, there is on the wall of our living room a picture, and it's of my dad in an old Ford Anglia, I'm going to say Anglia, it's either a Ford Anglia or a Ford Corsair, and he's going around banking of a racing circuit. In the bottom of the picture, inlaid at the bottom, is a speedo, a little small speedo dial. And I never really knew what that was. I just thought it was my dad liked cars or something until he told me about it. And he used to do endurance racing. And so the photo is from one of his endurance runs. And they're still in the record books for them because no one's ever bothered to try and beat them since. So they did seven days and nights. So you get the Le Mans 24 hour. We'll do that for seven days. They did that in 19... Oh, I should know all these dates. This is really bad. But they did them over a series of years in the 60s, basically. So I've always looked at that picture. So every I'd go into that living room every single day. It was our room where the TV was. You know, it's the room you yeah. sneak into when your parents think you're doing your homework. And I would see it. And then when I learned the story, I was like, oh, wow. OK, cool. So then as I was growing up and I was at school, my brother started racing. He's a few years older than me. And he started racing in a thing called the Super Coupe Cup. And he was in okay. a polo Super Coupe S or whatever it was called, the car he was racing. And he was in this series. And so I started going to places like Brands Hatch and to Thruxton and to Cadwell and places like that to watch him race because he was like my cool old brother. And I had a cool story for Monday at school or at college when I and I ended up he went and did it for a few years so I was around motorsport already then and then my other brother decided to get involved but he's older and his was probably a bit more of a midlife crisis <laughs> and he decided to start racing or an early midlife crisis and so I was just around it all the time so then when the chance to work in F1 came along I'd watched it since I was a kid because to spend any time with my brothers I had to like rugby I had to like football I had to like motorsport and they were my cool older brothers so I just wanted to hang out with them. So when they watched a Grand Prix on a Sunday afternoon, I'd sit and watch it with them. And I started to actually enjoy the Grand Prix. And I I remember, I think one of my clearest memories is um, Senna's crash at Imola. Mm. I was at home 
and it was a sunny day and I remember the whole family were outside in the garden and I was in the kitchen and I was sat on a stool in front of this tiny little portable TV in the kitchen watching it but I could still see what they were doing outside just in case I was missing out on any fun and I remember watching the crash and I remember the helicopter coming onto the track so first when he crashed I ran outside and told them and I said oh my god oh my god Senna's crashed and they were like, oh, you know, it won't be bad, even though everything else that happened that weekend, they were like, oh, he'll be OK, he'll be OK. And they stayed outside. So I went back into the kitchen to see what was happening. And I remember seeing the helicopter land and I ran back out and I said, it's really bad. They've got a helicopter on the track to take him away. And, they, and then they realised and they came in and watched it with me. And I, it's such a, such a clear memory of I was there watching it on my own at that point. And I'd sort of gone past the stage of watching it to hang out with them. I watched it because I loved it. And genuinely wanted to watch the races and so yeah. I have oh, I've got yeah memories starting off from watching it with them in the living room to then watching them on my own and having to tell them what happened afterwards oh you gave me goosebumps sorry <laughs> <laughs> I can still picture it like I and I know what the stool was this pine stool that was like a really horrible or you know that orangey pine yeah um and it was glossy except the top because we'd sat on it so much wasn't glossy anymore and I was sat on this stool watching this little tv like I can picture it now Oh my God, I'm there with you. That's mad. <laughs> <laughs> is that your earliest memory of motorsport or do you have a separate sort of earliest memory that you know is the first thing you thought of? I can't pick out a single race. I mean, I picked that one out because I exactly know every second as that went through. And I remember watching earlier races, but I couldn't tell you. I mean, I was, I must have started watching it when I was about 14, 12, 13, 14, because that's when my brothers seemed to be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so but I can't I mean my memories are the environment and sitting in the living room and always having to sit on the floor because they'd taken all the seats and things like that but I do remember watching those early races but I don't think I could pick out a particular race or a particular event before 94 yeah so that would be probably my earliest like strong memory the other memories are all sitting watching it with them and watching them try to recreate corners of the track with their little matchbox cars on the carpet and they're going around the apex like 50 times and things like that to try and get it right. And I was like, what are you doing? And now I get it. But they were just trying to get the perfect line. They'd make a core. They'd literally rough up the carpet to try and make a track that they could drive their little matchbox yeah. cars around and watching them doing that as well. Not quite getting why they had to do the same corner 10 times in a row and stuff. That's probably my first sharp memory, I would say. That's the loveliest thing, though. So your earliest motorsport memories are actually family memories. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's lovely. I think you're probably, I mean, I'd be surprised if you've not answered the next question, but I, I still want to ask you, which is, do you think motorsport, do you think you chose motorsport or motorsport chose you? Oh, that's a really hard one. I think, I think because of how much my family was involved in it, motorsport chose me in that I had, I was surrounded by it. So I kind of had to get involved, but then I think I chose it because I think I could have walked away. And I could have chosen, I mean, I did have to go and work in cricket for a while, but I didn't have the opportunity to work in motorsport then. If I'd had the opportunity then to work in motorsport, I think I probably would have done. But because yeah. cricket was the opportunity that came to me and I couldn't see a way into motorsport then, I went along the cricket line. But the minute Sky got the rights to F1, I was there banging on every door. Who do I need to speak to? Who, how do I get a job in this? How do I work in this? So I think it chose me and then I chose it back. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds it's really a good weird, relationship but, but yeah right I mean it's like when you meet a guy and the guy falls for you and then you fall for him back kind absolutely of. <laughs> yeah I, I believe the key is to keep choosing each other so over yeah. and over again so yeah. yeah I'm still choosing it at the moment it hasn't cheated on me yet when it cheats exactly. on me I'll choose I'll choose another sport <laughs> what would you say is the biggest misconce misconception about your job the glamour <laughs> yes I mean <laughs> It's, it's really tough because part of my job is to make it look glamorous in the sense that I go and do these city guides and I show off these amazing places we go to. That's my job on a, on a Wednesday or whatever before we go to the track is to make it look amazing. You know, it's to make these drivers look like superstars and all that sort of thing. And, and that is part of our job. But actually, I've actually had my brothers come to races now since Bernie left. It's been easier to get guests and I've been really lucky and I've been able to get them both to a race. And they both said, you know, your job is so different to what I thought. One, you work harder than I imagined. And I was like, great, thanks. I do work hard for my money. <laughs> and they said, two, it's not what we imagined. They're like, you're, you're at the track really early. You're at the track till really late. 
you get the nearest edible food you can find in the evening and you go to bed and then you get up and you go to the track and then I mean you know I'm, I'm telling you but it's not what everyone imagines it to be and everyone imagines all these amazing glamorous parties I don't know about you but I can probably remember one party last year and maybe one the year before that you yeah and I think we were both at the same one together yeah. <laughs> choices obviously <laughs> but that's I think that's what people we we obviously are going to present when you look on social media you present the best of your life so we're going to put all the fun stuff on social media but it's not like that all the time so I think the glamour of it generally glamour in tv generally it's not what people imagine but people don't want to hear that they want to imagine it's glamour so let's keep selling it that way it's an escape isn't it exactly well exactly we're there to entertain they don't want to see that our our voiceover booth is next to a stinking toilet or that you know (laughs) In Monaco, when I had to change into a fancy dress for the fashion show, it was in a portaloo. <laughs> I was trying not to touch anything, and my dress had a big skirt to it. And I was trying not to even brush the sides of this poor, tiny little portaloo with my dress. And I was like, I couldn't turn around and get my arms around without touching the sides of the portaloo to do the zip up. So I walked out and had to ask the nearest person to do my zip up as I came out of this portaloo. I mean, that's what they don't see. <laughs> so I have to admit, that's the sort of thing I would put on social media for sure. <laughs> I probably should. I probably should. <laughs> but fair enough, though, I completely agree. You know, on a similar note, actually, there's a massive emphasis on success in motorsport. It's kind of what it's built on. The whole point is pursuing um, elite and it's very, very competitive. How does that translate in your job? Do you find yourself becoming competitive just because you're such, I mean, you're a competitive person anyway, <laughs> but you are also surrounded by ultra competitive athletes all well, the it- time? It's a funny one because, so when I started in Formula One, I was working for Sky Sports News. And as a 24-hour rolling news channel, your job is to get the story. So that's your job. You know, that's what you're there for. And I found then, yes, it did feel much more competitive. And it was just in the sense that I wanted to make sure my bosses saw I was working and working hard. And that I thought the way of showing that was by getting the stories or getting them first. But actually getting things right is way more important than getting them first. And you you learn that as you work as you go along. But I think when I moved across to F1, I realized that, yes, you need to get the story, but you don't need to put it out there. You need to find out the whole story. You don't, you take, I think the sports news, you can get a headline and a, and a, and a quote or a little line on a story. And then that gradually develops. But with something like the F1 channel, you take that story, you develop it, and then you put it out there. So it's kind of, it's a different way of working. So it's it's definitely not as competitive working for the F1 channel. So for those that don't know the difference, Sky Sports News is a 24 hour rolling sports news channel, whereas Sky Sports F1 do programming around each race weekend. So you have a lot more time to develop stories. You have a lot more time to get interviews and do stuff. The only way I suppose it's competitive is that we all want as much time as we can get with the drivers. So as you know, everybody wants time with drivers. Everybody wants time with drivers away from the track. Everybody wants to do something different. Everybody's got this great idea. And that's where the competitive element comes in. But then it's up to you to think of something different. If I want to get some good time with the driver and get a good interview, I've got to come up with a reason for the driver and the team to want to do it. So that's where I compete. I try and think of things that hopefully they will want to do. Instead of just saying, can we have 10 minutes at the track? Everyone wants 10 minutes at the track. It's too easy. Yeah. And off the back of that, then, how do you now define success for yourself? There's one driver I'm trying to pin down for an interview, and he said yes, and his team have said yes, and his family have said yes, but we haven't got a date yet to go and do it, and it's actually at his home. And for me, if I've managed to pull that off, that's success to me, because he doesn't usually do it. So for me now, that would be success. Getting Sergio Perez to let us go to his home in Mexico and film with him and his wife and his baby, that was a success because you got to see a different side to him. He's away from the track. He's showing you his life and what he loves, which is Mexico. He's absolutely passionate about his country. So that sort of thing to me is a success. Getting something that people haven't seen before and that they like, that people want to watch and enjoy watching, that's success for me. If the audience reacts and say, I didn't know that, or that was really interesting, or you know, I enjoyed that, then that's success for me now. I love it because it just, I mean, as a side of, as a side of that, it just means that you get better and better content. I hope so. I hope so. Mm. It's making us work harder, I think. And that's a good thing. I, I like the challenge. Well, I love the fact that you take pride in being creative as part of the work that you do. Cause I just, I mean, I love that. That's what drives me as well. So, I mean, I know you, you and I've done this many times, but it's like sitting down and coming up with ideas together. You know, it's brilliant. 
it's so important because it's so easy to go to a race weekend and because a race weekend is so structured you mm. just turn the same thing out every weekend and that's not doing your job your job's got to be a way of doing different things thinking of different things this will be our ninth year um going to races and you've been to the same venue nine times before you should not be doing anything the same as you've done it before you should always be trying to think of new ways to do stuff yes definitely otherwise you know we'd get bored too so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> we want to keep coming back taking you a tiny bit away from the actual work and looking at everything else around it because motorsport is a very intense environment it takes you away from your family your friends your home so how do you balance that how do you actually approach that and then how do you also manage your friend and your family their expectations it's funny I I never really talked to anybody about it to start off with in the first few years and then gradually you talk to people about what happens when you work in motorsport like we do and there's this thing that happens when you start off, everyone's really excited and your friends are all like, oh, wow, that's great. And the invitations still come to all sorts of stuff. But then gradually over the years, they realize you're not around very much and the invitations stop coming. And I thought I was the only one going through this until I spoke to other people about it. And they're like, no, people just stop inviting you to stuff because they just assume you're never around. So one thing I found, and it did take a few years, was that I have to make a lot more effort than I ever used to to put time in the diary with friends so I'm looking at my calendar going right in between those races I've got a week who have I not seen for a while I make sure I catch up with them that week or what am I doing that week right I need to leave that day free because I've got to make sure I go and see my mum and dad or and it's it's actually kind of you have to make a really conscious effort because the people around you their lives go on and they just go on no matter what whereas you come home and you're like where is everybody and you have to pick up all those contacts again so it's really weird that nobody talks about it until somebody brings it up and then everyone goes, yes, that's happened to me. And yeah, and, and you end up, I think that's why we end up in the bubble we do in F1, because those are the people that you have the regular contact with in the end. All those people you used to have regular contact with are more random contacts now and infrequent. So it's a lot more effort to keep up social life and family and things, but you do realise the importance of it. So you yeah. start off and motorsports amazing and oh my god this is brilliant and everything and then you suddenly realize but that's my job and my life is at home and I need to concentrate on that a bit more and give that a bit more time I do exactly that I mean you're literally you're one of the people that I can run into whereas you know my friends from home I'm not going to run into them I have to exactly exactly Yeah, yeah I do um I take the racing calendar as soon as it's published and I build the calendar for the entire year so that I know which birthdays I'm missing which ones I'll definitely be there for I'll tell people that I can be there for their birthday or I'll tell people can we do something in and around because I won't be there that day I also bulk buy greeting cards and I I have them at home Mm -hmm. I have a cupboard here with a big bag of birthday cards in it various ages various topics and subjects and then I know that if I'm going away like when we went to Australia I had to send three cards to my mum one was her birthday card one was her anniversary card and one was Mother's Day and I send them all at once. I have to write on the back of them so she knows which one to open. And I'm just yes. like, birthday, anniversary, Mother's Day, um, and send them off. But I do often forget, and it's really hard, the amount of times I've been in a hotel room on the other side of the world in the middle of the night on the internet trying to get a card sent to somebody or a present sent to somebody because I've woken up in the middle of the night and gone, oh, no, I've missed her birthday or it's her birthday tomorrow, like nieces and nephews and things. So, Or I message them and I say, by the way, I brought you something really amazing in Japan and I'm bringing it back. And I have to find something from Japan to take them home. So, yeah, there's a lot of that goes on, too. Have you got a proudest moment that you have so far in your career? What would it be? And did you celebrate it? It's a really weird one because the day I found out I got the job on Sky F1 or doing F1 for sports news, I was actually working on a court case. So back in 2011... Um, towards the end of the year, October, November time, there was a court case of three cricketers who were on trial for spot fixing. One had admitted it, which we didn't know at the time. Well, we knew, but the public and the court didn't know. And the other two had pleaded not guilty. So I'd been sent to cover this court case. Now, on the very first day of the court case, I'd not done court journalism before. I hadn't learned the details. I didn't know what the processes were. I didn't know what the rules were. So I was going with our chief reporter. And I was in a cab at five in the morning on my way to the train station and I got a call and it's the chief reporter. And he says to me, oh, um, yeah, I'm in hospital with meningitis, so I'm not going to be able to come to court today. So I said, oh, OK. And he said, look, just go, just listen to everything. Talk to the other journalists who are in there and they'll tell you, you know, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, all this sort of thing. 
so I went to the first day of this court case and the court case went on for five weeks. And during that court case, I had my interview for the F1 job. So one day I had to go do my interview for the F1 job and then go straight back to court, take my notes and do my live updates every day. And the day I found out I got the job was also during the trial. So I was amazed I got the job. I had to go and do the end of this trial and their sentencing and everything else. And so I couldn't really celebrate it. But that was, I mean, I was really pleased I got it because although I worked at Sky, I still had to go through the same process as everyone else. So I had to go and do an interview. I had to put a PowerPoint presentation together, which I hadn't done for a long time. Um, (laughs) I had to give ideas of how I would cover it. I had to give a logo, make design a logo, all these things. And I actually, and also obviously go through the interview and tell them why I should get the job. So I was, I was really pleased and proud to get that, but I couldn't celebrate it because I was in court all day in this really like sad case of these amazing cricketers who, you know, allegedly taken money for, well, they were found guilty at the time, but obviously that's come under scrutiny since. But yeah, I had to go to this court case that was, um, it was crazy, absolutely crazy. That's not, that's a, that, I mean, one, that's a, a hell of a start on any court related journalism. Oh my word. It was crazy. Yeah. And then let's be fair, you know, do you also have, let's look at the, you know, the slightly lower moments. Do you have something, let's call it a lowest point that you felt that you overcame? Obviously, I think for any of us who were in the sport at the time, one of the hardest points was Jules Bianchi, his crash and then his death. And I, so I was at the race in Japan and um, I remember running the track on the Saturday evening. And when I came back from running the track, Jules had been in the garage with his mechanics. And as I came through the turnstiles to leave the paddock to go up to our TV compound, Jules was leaving with his trainer, Andrea, at the time. And I saw him and it'd been a really funny weekend. I'd He'd come into the pen at one point. There were rumours about him going to Ferrari that weekend. I don't know if you remember. It no. was the weekend with all the, there were rumours about him going to Ferrari and the Sebastian and Fernando. There was all sorts going on that weekend. He'd come into the pen on I think he was in the pen on the Thursday he was in the Thursday drivers press conference and he's come in and I'd been interviewing other people or something and then I'd said oh yeah I want to talk to you no actually it was before that yeah it was before that weekend he'd said to me at some point oh why do you never interview me and I said oh you need to get a drive for Ferrari then I'll interview you as a joke but I said you know we have this priority and all this sort of stuff and then he'd come into the pen that weekend and I did want to talk to him and he said oh, you want to talk to me now and I said yes because you've been linked with Ferrari so we had a laugh about it and a chat um, about all this sort of stuff so I sort of there'd been a bit of banter over the weekend as you have sometimes and so on the Saturday evening when I saw him leaving I just said to him huh why weren't you running the track just then you know you're getting lazy in your old age or something like that having a joke with him and he was laughing as he left and walked off with Andrea and so then the next day obviously we'd done I did the track parade that day and it was pouring with the rain as you'll remember yeah. I did the track parade interviews and as he'd got out of his car from the track parade and walked past he looked me up and down and laughed because I was drenched. I mean, I was a drowned rat. And he just laughed. I went, I know, I know. Don't go there. I, you know, I was I was literally a drowned rat at the time. Um, and so he'd gone off. So there were all these lovely little moments, you know, as you know, as you have sometimes banter that goes on. And so when the accident happened, obviously, massive shock, absolutely horrendous. But the problem was there was so much misinformation coming out. Yeah. There was an awful lot coming out that was that was rumour that wasn't, you know, and people were telling each other things that just weren't true. And I was on a coach at the time. I was on a bus. So we'd left. We were leaving the circuit to go to I think it was it was up to an airport. I don't know which airport it was. It might have been Nagoya driving up to Nagoya to get a flight. Mm-hmm. And we were all on the coach. And my boss turned to me and said, Sky Sports News needs somebody to stay and go to the hospital. And I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I sort of, and he looked at me and he said, he, he said, okay, you sure? I said, I can't do it. Please don't ask me to do it. Because I was due to fly home. I wasn't going to Russia to the next race. Yeah. And I knew Craig Slater was out there anyway. He was there for the race and he was going to Russia. So I knew they had somebody to do it, but I just said, I can't do it. And he was, you know, they were brilliant. They were like, okay, absolutely no problem. Craig's here. We'll see if he'll do it. And so I got on that flight to go home, but I was really cross with myself that I couldn't do it because that was my job. And I really wrestled with that for quite a while. Why was I not able to do my job that day? And then I thought, am I in the right job if I'm this upset about these things happening? And it wasn't that I was that upset, but I couldn't report. I just didn't feel like I could report on it. It yeah. was, it was, and I felt like I was a, not a failure, but I didn't feel, I suppose it was a failure. 
but I didn't feel like I was doing my job properly because I couldn't go to the hospital and report on him and the condition because and also because of all the rumors the, the, the horrific things people were you know putting out as rumors you know the sorts of things they were saying and I was just like I cannot say that on camera I couldn't say that on camera I couldn't I couldn't say these things about this person that we all knew on camera yeah. I couldn't do it so I did for a while I did wonder if I was in the right job and then I came back to England and the way TV works you have to have an obituary ready for somebody if they're in that situation to go yeah. out should the worst happen and I had to come back and make the obituary for him and I had to go into Sky Sports News and sit there and go through footage of him as a kid footage through everything gets me gets me even now but I I, I had to put that together and I when I sat in there I said you know what I'm going to do you the best job I can do on this like I'm going to spend as long as it takes to get this right and to get it to be good because I owe that and I I had I had to do something I felt like I wasn't helping by not being there but I had to do something and and I ended up doing that but it was I did feel as though yeah I'd I'd let them down by not being able to go to the hospital but isn't it a mark of your professionalism that you recognized you wouldn't have been able to do the best job you could under those circumstances so you let somebody else do it I didn't see it that way I didn't see it that way and also no, of course not because you're going to beat yourself up yeah but we also had so when he did pass away the following July I was on I was working at an event called Fishermania because I was I wasn't at the European races so I was at Fishermania or it might have been between races actually I was in a hotel room and I woke up in the morning and my phone was covered in text messages and missed calls and I knew something bad had happened and because a couple of them were from my family, I thought I'll ring them first. And I rang my brother and he said, have you seen? And I said, what? And he said, Jules has passed away. And I said, oh, wow. OK, no, I hadn't. And he said, and he said, oh, I didn't know if you'd seen the story. So then I got up, had a shower and this started listening to the voicemails. And one of them was Sports News asking me to do a live on it. And I said, um, I'm at this other, I'm working for this other channel, like it's Sky Channel, but it was another channel. I said, let me get to the venue. And I'll do it there because I had to get the okay from them. They were doing it through their broadcast truck, all kinds of stuff. And I went and did it. And I did the, I asked them if we, I did one live. And then they said, can you do a pre-recorded one afterwards for us to play out for the rest of the day? Because I had to carry on with the job I was doing there. And I did the live. And at the end of the live, I got through it, but I walked off camera and then had a moment just to compose myself again. And somebody was in my ear saying, we need it now. We need it now. And I was just like, give me a minute give me a minute and I'll be back and then I went back and just recorded this pre-recorded piece and then and then that was it but even then I mean literally you just spend the whole day thinking you know should I be doing this should I be doing that what should I be doing um but actually I was probably in the best place because when you're reporting on an angling competition that you know nothing about it kind of focuses your mind a little bit as well <laughs> talking about the size of the fish the guys just caught and how much you reckon it weighs um it definitely helps distract a little bit but yeah it was that's that's definitely the lowest point and it also makes you question whether or not you should be friends with these drivers that's the toughest part because, because it is because we're all friends yeah. yeah and they're all human beings and to us you'll see them drive the car but I don't think you ever properly register what they're doing and and then you go out and you'll see them out drinking and you'll have a laugh at a party or at something else or you know and then they're back in the car and you're all back in your day job and I just don't think Maybe we consciously don't let that go into our heads, but I don't think we ever truly take on board what they do. No, no, I know I don't. I, mm. I can't. I have, yeah. I have to not allow that thought in my head. Yeah. But then the weird thing was when I went, when I did that, those, those two little races in the Radical Cup, Radical SL1 Cup, I never once thought about my safety. My only concern was, was looking like an idiot and being slow. <laughs> I never once thought about getting injured or crashing or it was the weirdest thing because I thought, oh, I'll be scared, I'll crash or this. But when you're driving, you have absolute utter faith in yourself. Yeah. So it's only when you're a passenger, you're scared. When you're driving, like I crashed on a Friday um, at 100 miles an hour, just took off the rear wing, got back in the car after lunch, carried on. You know, I have to believe that's what they think. They get in the car and they think I'm in control of this. So I'm absolutely going to be fine. Of course. And they also happen to be the very best at doing it. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, we all have faith in in what they're doing. And I have faith in, you know, everyone that's working on the cars, putting the cars together. And we, we do. And we all know each other. So we all know that we can do our jobs, drivers included. But we're also a family that travels together. And mm. um, that bites back. Mm. Sadly reminded again last year in Spa with Antoine. You know, that's just 
you just get these reminders sometimes, don't you, that actually it's not normal and they're not superhuman. They they are just like you and I. Completely. I'm going to flip it yes. and ask you, what is your favourite thing about motorsport? Because we need a smile now. <laughs> yeah. What's my favourite thing about motorsport? I would say the first thing that springs to mind straight away is is the family element of it. The fact that, you know, you walk into the paddock in Australia or even at testing and it's like, oh, we're all back together again. That for me is just amazing. And you hear about it before you work in it. But actually, once you work in it, you're like, OK, I get it now. I get it. But I also love, I don't know how you describe it. When, when you get to a racetrack and the cars start up and that atmosphere, mm. that vibe is just it's not just about speed it's not just about you know skill it's it's all of it that comes together it's the incredible brains that go into making the car in the first place it's the incredibly fit athletes they have to be to drive these cars it's the mechanic who knows a driver comes back and says oh you know I'm getting a little bit much understeer here when I do like literally you know knows exactly what to do or when they take the car apart and put it all it's like the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle and yet they those guys literally know everyone you know there's all these little things that make it such an amazing sport and I've worked in football and cricket and other sports but this to me is just probably because I can't understand all the different parts of the car and how it goes together and all these different things and all these incredible brains working on laptops wandering around I have no idea what they're doing either a lot of them a lot of the time I think (laughs) I think all of it when it comes together is just so amazing. That's it's every little tiny part of that jigsaw puzzle, I think. I can't sort of put my finger on one thing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Motorsport is also incredibly fast moving and from that can come stress. And I just wondered what kind of stress do you experience in your work and how do you cope with it? I think from working in other sports, motorsport is like no other sport. Motorsport, there will be stories every single day of the year. Even in the off season, there is a story every single day of the year. So I think for me, the stress comes from never switching off. Mm. And I think that's actually probably quite a problem in motorsport because because it is so fast moving because there's stuff happening all the time I mean we're talking about 2021 and 2022 already and we're barely into 2020 so you know the fact that people are looking that far ahead means you never switch off you're always thinking I've literally been on the internet this morning making sure I'm aware of all the stories that are doing the rounds just in case just in case and I think that is part of the stress with motorsport. You feel like you cannot ever leave it truly alone for a week, even if you go on holiday. I don't feel like you ever truly switch off because you're worried you're going to miss something. And that's just 
and it doesn't happen in other sports you know in in mm. cricket for example over the winter yes england will be on tours or there'll be b teams on tours or there'll be the odd story here and there but you do have time to switch off and i don't think that happens in motorsport so i think that's probably one of the most stressful things about it and how do you how do you work around that i'm not sure i do i'm not <laughs> sure i do i mean for example today i had no reason to read up on everything today yeah there, there was no real reason i'm doing some work tomorrow so i could have read up on it tomorrow morning before i do the work in the afternoon but i still do it every day so that's probably something i actually need to work on i need to switch off everyone always has a go at me family friends i'll go on holiday and i'll still be keeping an eye on motorsport or i'll tweet because there's a story broken and like put your phone down and switch it off but it's and it's not it's not even about social media or anything it's just feeling like you're doing the job i suppose maybe that's is that the competitive side of it i don't know but I, it's not putting the story first but it's making sure that your followers are aware of everything that's going on yeah i don't know maybe that's that's a stress but yeah i don't do it very well <laughs> don't deal with it very well it's maybe not and, stress it's more guilt probably for me i think it's stress. responsibility yeah like you have a responsibility in your position and you take it very seriously it's but it is it's one of those things isn't it keeping on top of everything is just incredible and also i think i think there are people whose job it is to write a story every day but that's yeah. not part of my job but i think seeing other people do it makes you think oh should i be doing that should i be doing that you actually you've gone on to it beautifully let's talk about social media for a second Ugh. you know what <laughs> It is an intrinsic part of the job that you and I do, but also part of our lives anyway. You know, what's your view on it? How do you deal with it? It's like, to me, it's like exercise. I love it yeah. and I hate it. I know I have to do it. And I know it's never as bad as it seems. It's a weird one. I think you can't get away from it now. You can't work in our jobs and not do it. And a lot of companies, you know, if you say you're a journalist or a reporter and you don't have a social media presence and know how to use social media, you know, you're not going to get a job or you're going to be, you know, sidelined. But for me, Twitter is information, as I mm. see it. And Instagram yeah. is for picture. It's for color. It's for adding to stuff people already know. And you're a bit more personal, I guess, on Instagram as well. It has a massive role, social media. Twitter has a massive role in the news and the news agenda. Yeah. But it also comes with a massive responsibility. And I think it's, I mean, I'm really lucky. I've got amazing followers I very rarely get anything nasty or any trolling on Twitter you know you get the odd silly comment but nine times out of ten if you reply to that person so say they what did I have the other day oh god I can't remember but I had something the other day and I explained my tweet again to the person or the fact or whatever it was and they came back and they went oh I didn't realize oh, I'm really sorry oh thanks so much for replying and yet their first tweet had been really vicious and really aggressive yeah and then everyone else says, oh, don't reply, don't reply. I'm like, well, if I'm factually correct in what I've said and somebody's going against that, I'll just try and point them to the source or to where it's come from or to why it's factually correct or whatever it was I said. But also then a lot of the time I'll just look at it and think, I'm not, I didn't put that tweet out there for you. I put that out for someone who wants to know that piece of information or I put it out there for someone who'll yeah. get something from that. So you just let it go. So I'd love to be really funny and really quick-witted and really sharp. Like I follow James Blunt and he's hilarious. I'd love... Oh, he's and brilliant. Also, yeah. also, Laura Woods, who works at Sky, is brilliant at handling Twitter trolls. She's so good at it. She doesn't take anything from anybody and she's funny and she's sharp. She does it really, really well. I don't have that in my toolbox, unfortunately. <laughs> I'd love to because it'd be brilliant. I mean, I'd love to hire her to do it for me. But, <laughs> but that's the way she deals with it brilliantly. And I think because I can't deal with it that brilliantly, I just ignore it. But I'm really, really lucky. I get so little of it. Yeah. I can just ignore it because it's only a tiny bit. I can just ignore it if I want to. Um, Instagram's different. Instagram is a funny one. Instagram people seem to go to because they want to know more about your life. Yeah. And they want to be nosy. And but in a nice way, you know, there's it's you don't often get negative comments on Instagram. Because I think I like to think anyway that people appreciate you giving them a look into your life. I never put really personal stuff, so I don't put my nieces and nephews and family and people on there. If they've got their own Instagram accounts, I let them do it on there, but I never really put sort of family and people like that on there. Yeah. So I like it. I mean, I follow 
stupid amounts of people on Instagram. Like my day is scrolling. Oh, look what they've done. Look what they've done, you know, and scrolling through Instagram all day. But I think Instagram's great, but I think you have to remember people only put the good stuff on Instagram nine times out of 10. So I don't know. I had someone say, oh, you know, your pictures on Instagram, they're all great. I'm like, yeah, but I only put the good ones up. <laughs> so <laughs> there are plenty of bad ones on my camera roll. Don't you worry about that. I have good ones up. So, so yeah, don't be fooled. It's just a little, it's a little sneak backstage, isn't it? I see yeah. it as that. It's just that, just allowing people to get to know you or get to know what you do that little bit more. Yeah. And it's without, without having them in your pocket every day, because that's just not doable. But yeah, it's that thing of like, you look, you know, I'm happy to share this. I'm happy to show you this because I want you to know that things are real and not always yeah. perfect. And, and, and it's just nice. And it's also, I, I use it as like a, record of what I've done or places I've been oh it's my things, diary isn't yeah. it I mean yeah. someone said the other day something about a race and I went oh hang on I went back to Instagram and went oh yeah that was in March 2015 and you know I literally had to go back to that Instagram to work out when that was so no completely it's yeah. I'm completely visually driven anyway so it, as far as I'm concerned Instagram is my diary there's one last sort of topic I'd really like to cover with you and it's advice um because we get asked a lot and I know you do definitely and for anybody that wanted to work in motorsport and that's listening in the hope of gaining some little nuggets, what would you actually tell them? So I had to do, I did a talk recently for Dare to be Different at the end of last year to uh, a room full of great girls who'd come along and some guys actually, to be fair, and there were some dads there as well, but mostly girls, young girls wanting to get into motorsport. And I was on a panel with a doctor and uh, an engineer and an aerodynamicist obviously all female and there was a common theme among us that actually we weren't going to talk about but we did in the end and it was that it's not perfect and it is still really tough for women in motorsport all four of us had imposter syndrome which is where you don't feel like you're good enough to be doing what you're doing you're kind mm. of winging it or bluffing or whatever and and for all four of us to have it, I mean, the doctor was a doctor in A&E. I mean, she's not winging it. She's not bluffing. She is a doctor in A&E. But we all said that we get it. And there's, there's I don't know, some stats somewhere, but it's basically around sort of 90% of women have imposter syndrome and only 10% of men. And it's bizarre that we, we feel like we're not good enough to be doing what we're doing, but we absolutely are. But all four of us had this feeling and all four of us felt that we've, basically, I've always said you have to work twice as hard to get half the credit as a female mm. in sport full stop motorsport definitely but don't let that put you off make it let it make you work harder let it make you do something different let it make you come up with ideas other people would never have you know use it as an inspiration rather than as a you know a positive rather than a negative I mean there is still I'm not going to say there's no sexism in motorsport because there still is it's a lot less but there still is but work out how to deal with it work out what your answer is to it work out whether you're going to let it wash over you not let it get to you whether what you want to work out no you know I'm going to have a good comeback for that I'm going to you know not going to let you get away with it have a have a plan but don't be put off because I think motorsport now is so much it's a much better place for women to work in and girls to work in than than ever before and there are more women working in it so pleased that we now have more women in the garages more women on the pit walls because Mm. as you know it used to just be you know the girls in catering or you know a female press officer but now we've got people up and down we've got you know Michelle and Composites at Racing Point we've got you know Ruth doing the strategy for Alfa Romeo I mean there are girls up and down the pit lane now and it's brilliant and this isn't I mean I'm not just going to talk about women in motorsport but I as a woman in motorsport, I don't want young girls to be put off coming into motorsport. And they absolutely shouldn't. I know that through Dare to be Different, young girls think, you know, there aren't many opportunities in motorsport. They might see me on camera or they might see you as a press officer. But actually, you know, and to say to them, we had a we had a group come along and my niece joined in with one of them, came to one of the school days. And we had sessions, go-karting, TV reporting, physio, and there was a STEM session science, technology, engineering and math session and they had to build a hovercraft from scratch and then they showed it fly. So they came along and did this and she took part in the STEM session um, and she rides motorbikes so we thought she'll do the go-karting and she'll love it and she'll want to be a racing driver and she came away saying I want to do some STEM stuff, I want to work in STEM, like I want to work in that area but she'd never heard of it before 
So, which is this, half the battle. Which yep. is the battle. We need to get all these things into schools. We need schools to just treat girls and boys equally. Teach boys cookery and sewing. Teach girls engineering, you know, and technology and stuff like that, which I hope they are doing more of now. But yeah, when she said that, you just think, wow, this is a huge battle we've got here ahead of us mm. to make sure that everything is you know they see everything as an opportunity rather than oh that's for them this is for us and if you if you are a girl wanting to work in motorsport just be persistent be a pain do everything you need to do find out the right people to talk to get advice wherever you can I wrote to my boss at Sky for five years before I even got an interview I wrote him for five years at Sky Sports News saying um hi hi I work on the radio and I want to come work for you one day you know and there's like yeah great thanks very much we'll keep an eye on you Hi, hi, I've moved to Talk Sport now. Can I come and work for you one day? Yep, keep doing what you're doing. Hi, I'm still at Talk Sport. Hi, hi. And then eventually he said, come and have an interview. Come and see me. And I went and saw him. And I told him that I was really into my cricket. And I'd heard he was really hard taskmaster, this boss. And so I thought, right, if I say I'm into cricket, I better know everything there is to know about cricket. And so I swatted up on cricket before I went. And not just England. I swatted up on county cricket players. And I swatted up on not just Division One, but Division Two as well. So this is like knowing Formula One, Formula Two and Formula Three, F3, I guess, F2 and F3. Yep. And not only did I swat up on the cricketers and the teams, I swatted up on their batting and bowling averages. So that when he sat me down in my interview and said, right, OK, you, th- you say you know about cricket. I was like, yeah. And he said, OK, who's the uh, top of the bowling averages in Division Two? And I named them straight away. And he asked me some really difficult questions. I would never know now. Nobody knows these answers. I mean, you know, that's nuts. Unless you're the player themselves, no one knows. But I swatted up and learned everything. I was up for hours the night before, my friend testing me. And I didn't get a single one wrong. And at the end of it, he said, if you quit your job tomorrow, I'll give you a job tomorrow. And so I went back into talk sport and quit the next day. And then I rang him up and went, uh, just quit my job. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) And that's how I ended up at Sky. So if you want something, never, ever give up. Just keep going for it. Just do whatever it takes. If you want it badly enough, you will get it. It's, but you don't want it badly enough if you give up. If you let things put you off, then you didn't want it badly enough. Yeah, you have to fight for it. Yeah. In the kindest way possible, but you have to fight for it. Yeah, do the yeah. right thing. Do the right thing. I mean, try. And also, don't ever trample on people on the way up because they're the people who will be there waving at you on your way down again. That's well, and also they'll become your support network and then you need them. Yeah. Absolutely. I, mean, I remember one of my producers now on F1 was the runner making the tea and getting sandwiches when I worked on a poker for a while. <laughs> and so I'm very glad I was nice to him. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to be nice to everybody, but I'm very glad I was nice to him then because he's my boss now. <laughs> Do you know, I have, I have printed, I have written uh, rejection letters from every single Formula One team because when I first started applying when I first started trying to work in motorsport you were still getting rejection letters you know you still had yeah. to send in a printed CV and a printed cover letter and you'd get a rejection printed rejection letter back and I've kept those I've kept those I have every single team but it's good motivation I mean the, the only way I got in so I wanted to work in radio to start with and the only way I got in was because I applied for jobs I wasn't qualified for but I applied to newspapers when people put job adverts in newspapers it's that long ago um (laughs) but they but I would see the advert and I would apply for a job I knew I wouldn't get but when they replied there was always a name on the bottom and I then wrote to that name and said can I come and make the tea do your photocopying do this do that and that's how I got in and got jobs so I got work experience at loads of different places and then basically made myself so useful that they didn't want to let me go and, and ended up staying there and working so I literally took my rejection as my way in yeah essentially so yeah if you want it you'll do it have you been given a piece of advice along the way that you've kept with you all this time that you can still recall and that you actually still use no because everyone just thought I was mad (laughs) in the first place (laughs) I mean like the only piece of advice I know just from working life that I was given by my mum which is I use every single day in every situation is never go to someone with a problem go to them with a solution So if you've got a problem, think of the solution and take that to them because you never want to be that person who goes to somebody with a problem, if that makes sense. Yeah. So if you've got an issue at work, work out the solution and then take that to somebody. Don't go to your boss and say, I've got a problem with so-and-so. Say, I feel I'd be better doing this. What do you think? We'd get more from this. We'd get that. We'd get, you know, give them the solution to the problem rather than the problem. 
I think that's the only bit of advice I've always carried with me. I use that every day. Good. I use that every day and I teach it to everybody. If you identify a problem, at least try and come up with a solution. It might not be the solution that's used. Yeah, exactly. It might not be the one that fits because you might not know all the facts, but if you at least just try. Yeah, absolutely. Always try. Yeah, because nobody wants to be, no, no boss wants to hear someone coming to them with a problem. But at least if you come with a solution, they might be able to do something about it. Yeah. And it just shows that you're trying. That yeah. You thought about it. Yeah. So, yeah, winning all round. And your solution might be the start of an idea. Yeah. So exactly. you never know where it's going to go. Yeah. Definitely. My, um, my last question to you today, Rachel. Uh-oh. No. <laughs> I'm um, scared now. <laughs> just a simple one. What okay. are you looking forward to? And I'm looking forward to getting back talking about competitive racing and what's going on on track and who's doing what and and just having those thoughts fill my head really other than have I got enough food or I have to actually go out to the shops in the next couple of days or (laughs) where can I go and get my hours exercise today which way should I go when I turn out of the front door and 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 yeah just seeing everybody again really and just seeing everybody smiling and carefree I guess definitely thank you very much for doing this thank you for asking me (laughs) it was brilliant how awesome is Rachel Brooks I hope if you're looking to work in motorsport and are particularly interested in working in television that this podcast was helpful to you Rachel is brilliant and full of knowledge so do check her out on Instagram her account is Rachel Brooks and I'm sure she'll answer your questions if you get in touch If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review if you can. Sometimes that function is available, sometimes not. It helps people find us in any case, but it also means so much and I'll be reading all of them. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandea, P-A-N-D-E-A. Thanks very much for listening and speak to you next week.